Have you ever taken your car into the shop? Something's not quite right on it. It's making noises, or maybe it's not even running. And uh, you bring it in, and the the technicians, the the repair guy, they they take a look at it. They you pop the hood, and and they look down, and they go, "Oh, well, here's your problem right here." I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Uh, I am not a car guy. I'm just not. I, I can do some real basic repairs on things, but something goes wrong with my car. I start scratching my head. I start thinking, well, I, when this happened, I, you know, before I tried this and I've heard about this and maybe that's a problem. And then an expert comes by and fixes it just like that. It's very frustrating. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe not for you, but it's frustrating for me when it's something so simple. Uh, a few years back, actually, I think it might have been uh, around a, a year ago or maybe early this, this past winter, um, I was over at Fort Lewis doing some training for the military, for the National Guard, and I had just, I had, I was just going out of the gate of Fort Lewis, and any of you know where that is. It's on I-5. It's a very busy place. And uh, it's not a good thing to be stuck right there on the exit of that gate coming out of that, that installation. But my car stopped working and I coasted to a stop and I couldn't get it going. And, and I thought, what's, what's going on here? What's the problem? Well, I ended up taking it to a shop. I ended up staying an extra night. Um, the, my car wasn't running, I didn't think. The next day, I, I got a jump. My mother-in-law came and she said, why don't we take it to this mechanic that I know who always does work on my car. Okay, let's do that. And for, it, we got the car started, and I thought, I don't know if it's going to stay going. I don't want, I, it's probably going to die on us, so I, I'll try to drive it out of the out of Fort Lewis, around some back roads, and try to get it to where it needs to go, and you follow me, and if something happens, you can give me another jump, and maybe it'll start up again, and all this. And I get there, and we take it to the mechanic, and I have him pop the hood, and he goes, ah, okay, um, well, I think I know what your problem is. I'll have this working for you in about three minutes. And he cleaned off the battery terminals, and I fired it right back up, and it's never died since. What is going on? It's, it seems so simple, but it takes somebody who's an expert to identify what's really going on, what's really at the root of the thing. And, and see, the problem with our cars is not that they're dirty. It's not that their paint jobs are kind of messed up. It's not that, you know, we run into things and we get all these little dents in it. The problem, the thing that keeps our cars from running is what's on the inside. It's what's inside of it. It's problems with batteries and, and fuel, you know, fuel pumps and, and oil and all of the rest. It's all of that stuff that's on the inside. It, it's really what's coming out of the vehicle. That's the problem. And it's the same with us as people. You know, our problems are not that uh, all of the things around us. I mean, we, we feel, we we've, uh, certainly feel difficulties 
uh, putting pressure on us. Life has a problem or has, a, has this tendency to weigh down on us and the external things that we go through, they cause us turmoil. But really the root of all of our problems is that life is not as it should be. We are not as we should be. What comes out of us in our thoughts and our attitudes and our behaviors, they're not what they should be. That's where the real problem is for every one of us. And, and the reason why we have so many conflicts and we, the reason why we have so many disagreements is because we're all people with bad hearts. We have, we're all people with a problem on the inside and it comes out in all of those different ways and, and that's where all those conflicts come from and all of those world problems and nations against nations and, and disagreements and political problems and you name it. It's, it's what's on the inside and, and it truly is what comes out of us that's a problem that needs to be solved. So let's, let's look at this because I think this passage today it is what this passage is all about today that I want us to look at. So um, we're, we're going to look at Mark chapter, beginning at Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 53. Mark chapter 6, verse 53. And, and I want us to look at this first few, these first few verses and then the rest of this passage actually in turn. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you at once. I'm gonna, we're going to read a passage. I want to share a little bit from that. I'm going to read the next section and then we'll kind of work our way through and you'll see why I'm doing that at Hope. Uh, there's a progression here in, in this passage and that the, the gospel writer Mark wants us to see. And so um, I just want to begin uh, looking at um, verses 53 to 56 of chapter 6. Let me read that aloud and you can remain seated where you are. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Uh, this, this section I've titled in my notes, I've given it the title, A Proper Recognition. A proper recognition, these few, first few verses. Well, what's been going on here? Um, if you remember, um, the progression so far has been Jesus fed 5,000 people. Uh, many of them who wanted Him, you know, it looks like they're, they were swelling to a, an army-sized group of people wanting Him to be king. And He uh, dismisses His disciples, dismisses the crowd. And last we looked, He was walking on the sea and he was declaring to, him, to them, I am. Take heart, do not be afraid. He's revealing himself as God in the flesh. And they had a hard time understanding that. Well, there they are in the boat, and they cross over. They get to a land, Gennesaret. They didn't get to Bethsaida, where they were intending to go, probably because they were rowing against the wind all night long and were pushed out of their course. But here they are at this different place, a place that Mark hasn't talked to us about yet. And, and most people, when they read this passage, they see it as it's just a summarization of, of 
what Jesus has been doing. It's a summary of His ministry. And, and let's get through these verses so we can get on to something else. But I want us to pause before we get to the next passage, before we look at what happens in chapter 7. I want us to pause and see here that there is a proper recognition of two things. One, they recognize Jesus. It says in verse 54, the people immediately recognized Him. There's Jesus and His disciples getting out of a boat that they had just brought onto the shore. And they recognize Him. They see Him. And then what do they do? They run about. They go to this place and that place and they grab the sick people and they bring him to Je- bring them to Jesus because it wasn't just a proper recognition of Jesus, who he is, but what he could do for them. They recognized too their need. They had great needs. They recognized that they needed this person in their life. And so Mark writes that they they brought him and wherever he was going, whether it was in a little village or whether it was a larger city or whether it was in the fields, in the countryside, they would lay the sick in marketplaces, it says, in the marketplaces. And they'd implore him. These, These marketplaces were the gathering places where all this diverse interaction took place in that culture. They would come from their, their little villages and they'd go to the large centers where all the people were. And these marketplaces were set up for, for food, um, for uh, trade, and all the other types of things. And that, well, look what they were doing. They said, they implored Him that they might touch even the... They just, let us just touch the fringe of your garment, the robes that, that, that the proper Jew would wear had these little tassels tied on to the corners of the robe and they would, they would, they would basically represent Old Testament Scripture, that, that they would take that Scripture with them wherever they went. And, and Jesus, who wasn't a hater of the Old Testament... He loved it. <laughs> he, he taught it. He expounded on it. He explained what it meant. Um, he even had those fringes on his garments. And it says that many, as many as touched it, they were made well. These people were coming to... They were, come, they were becoming healed by touching even the garment. It reminds, should remind us, I think, of, of the woman a few chapters back who came up to Jesus in a crowd and and touched His garment and was made heal of her disease. So, let me ask this question. As we think about recognizing Jesus and recognizing need, who do you think of when you hear a story like this? All of these sick people coming to Jesus. Who are the people that you think of? Do you think of people who are down and out? Do you think of people who are sick? Do you think of people, and that could be sick physically or other, in other ways? Is that typically what you think of? Because that's what I usually think of. And then I, I was kind of challenged that we're actually meant to see ourselves in that story. We're actually meant, I believe, to see that we're the sick ones, that we're the ones in need. That we're the ones who need Jesus. We need His touch or we need to touch Him. We have a need as well. And the Bible says very clearly from front to back 
that our greatest need is to deal with the sin in our life, the things that separate us from God, the things that displease Him. Real healing does not begin until we recognize our need and our Savior. We have to... That, it, it won't happen until we do that. Until we see that we have a real need and that we have a real Savior who can meet that need. I've talked to many people who have, who have expressed there's something in their life they don't like. They know they need something. They know they need a change. But they haven't got to the point of saying that's, that's a need that only Jesus can meet. That's something that only my relationship with Jesus can heal. So they keep going along. They're, they're the walking wounded. They're dead in that, in that, in their lives. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are like the sick person, the sick people who are being, being brought to Jesus in the marketplaces. A proper recognition. Let's see, the, the scene changes here as we roll into chapter 7, which it's important to remember that Mark didn't divide up his story in chapters and verses. It was just one through story. And so don't let those chapter divisions or little headings that the editors put in your Bibles you know, distract you to, and from seeing the connection from one story to another because I think there's a real connection here. And the, the, next, the next part of this, of this passage that I want us to look at today um, when we roll into the next few verses is a misdiagnosis. We see a proper recognition in these first few verses. And then in 7 verse 1, we see a misdiagnosis. So follow with me as I read um, chapter 7 verses 1 to 8. And it says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. 
So what is this misdiagnosis that's going on here? Here are the Pharisees and the scribes. Now they've come from Jerusalem. That's the center of religion. That's the center of Judaism. That's the center of everything. There's the temple there. And, and everyone, that's where the learning takes place. And, and that's where the, the, the religious experts are gathered. And here they are. These are they come from Jerusalem. They're, it's another uh, representative group, another fact-finding mission to see what's been going on with Jesus. And so they come and and they have seen this. They've seen the people being healed, yes. But why are they asking this question? What are they observing? They're saying they're seeing His disciples. They're not washing their hands in a certain way. Their hands are defiled. And what are they seeing? Well, they've been, they've been watching Jesus and the disciples move about from little village to village, city to city. And all of these nasty, dirty, filthy, rotten, sick people have been touching Jesus. And then they won't even wash their hands afterwards. Terrible. Now, they, they didn't care about hygiene. That wasn't the point. It's not... Look, kids... When your mom tells you to go wash your hands before supper, do it. It's important, okay? Wash the germs off. Be healthy. But this is not what it was about. They didn't care about hygiene. They weren't, they weren't concerned about physical health. They weren't ex- concerned about germs. They were, they were concerned that, that not washing in a certain way and saying a certain prayer. Here's, here's what they would say. If I can find it in my notes here. They would, they would say a little prayer before every time they would wash their hands. And I do have it in my notes. I honestly do. And it was first, the prayer was first spoken by the priests. And they would, they would wash their hands and they would, it would be an act of, it wasn't, it wasn't to wash the germs off. It was to wash the, the uncleanness of unclean people off. It was to wash away the sin that might have infected them from somebody else. And they would, they would, they would, they would say this. They would, they would wash their hands and they would let the water, a little bit of water run over their hands and they would cup them like this and, and it would go through and they wouldn't use soap, but the water came with a blessing, they'd say, Blessed be, blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by thy law and commanded us to wash the hands. They were, they were very concerned about purity. In fact, their, their washing of the hands, which was commanded for the priests to do, and later on, the, 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 Jew, the, the Pharisees, the origins of the Pharisees, those that became the Pharisees later on, said, you know what? We all ought to do this. We all ought to wash our hands like the priests do. We all ought to be that, that holy. Because Leviticus chapter 20, Jesus, God said to us, you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have said separated you from the peoples. This law that used to be applied to the priests became a law for everybody, a rule that they added. It was a tradition of the elders, 
You see that phrase here twice in verse 3 and again in verse 5, that this tradition of ceremonial washing was meant to, originally meant to be a way that we could be really, really holy and really, really good and then God would be pleased with us. And so when they saw Jesus and His disciples coming from the marketplaces and not washing their hands and not doing that ceremonial thing, they said, how could you go against the tradition of the elders? It's there for a reason. It's there to protect you and to protect us from being ceremonially unclean, being, being sinful, being outside of God's um, pleasure. So Jesus says, actually, you're hypocrites. Here's what you're doing. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, when he says, this people honor me with their lips, their heart is far from me. They're saying these things, but they don't really care to, to obey my commands. And it says, in vain do they worship me. It's like we come to church every Sunday. I just said, come to church. Sorry, David. We come into this place and we gather as the church and we, we sing songs and we pray and God looks down and He sees into our hearts and He says, you're worshiping me in vain. You're singing those songs to me in vain because your heart is far from me. In fact, you're teaching things, you're teaching as doctrines, you're teaching teaching as if they were commandments of men. In other words... You're making rules up and you're saying you all have to be like this or God's not going to be happy with you. That's what he's saying. That's what Isaiah was saying. You're making these rules up. And now they had a lot of rules. And, and, and yes, they were concerned to please God, but over time, what it became was rule upon rule upon rule. And the law said one thing, but then there were things like, well, what about that situation? So then the rabbis, they would make up more rules. And then you would like, well, I don't know how to obey this. What should I do? And you, you stop, that's when you stop seeking, the, seeking God in the Word, and you start asking experts, and you say, well, what should I do? Well, how should I live? And they would go, well, there's a, there are all these other rules. There are all these other things that you have to do. And these are important too because they are part of our tradition. You actually, you can't be holy. You can't please God unless you are doing these things. And especially if you touch something that you shouldn't touch, that's the worst of the worst. And so they have rules about unclean things. You couldn't touch human waste. And you couldn't touch a woman after she gave birth to a baby until she was cleaned. You couldn't touch a dead body or you couldn't touch a leper. And then they're like, well, you know, we should add these other things too. Don't touch sinners, period. If there's tax collectors, they're the worst. Don't touch Samaritans. That would be very bad because they're half-breeds. They don't really believe what we believe anyway. And then don't touch Gentiles. Anyone who's not a pious Jew, leave them alone. So what does Jesus do? He comes along and He touches a leper. And He touches tax collectors and spends time with them. And He reaches out and He touches a Gentile man who was possessed by a demon. And then a woman comes up to Him who, was, who had a bleeding disorder for years and touches Him and He says, 
your sins are forgiven and Jesus walks away clean and so does the woman. He's not defiled by that. Oh, and then he goes and he touches a dead body and raises a little girl from the dead. He's doing all of this. And for the, for the Pharisees and the scribes, it's despicable. He has no business doing this. He calls them hypocrites. They were the Greek actors who stood up on a, on a stage and they wore masks. And they, they presented themselves as a, as a character from Greek mythology. And then they would come down from the stage and they'd take the mask off. And he says, you're like hypocrites who never take the mask off. You're, you're fooling yourselves. You're thinking that you're holy and righteous and good. You're, you're wearing that mask. You're actually deceiving yourself in that. So how easy it is for us today, isn't it? To be so concerned with our holiness and the, uh, and the holiness of other people. And we may want to please God or we may start out with the best of intentions. And so we create rules for ourselves. But they don't just, they're, they're not just guardrails for our lives. Which is important. Guardrails for our lives. Don't go there. Don't go there. Stay away from that. That's a place you don't want to be. They can be... Health, they can be helpful. But what we do is then we say, you all need to have those as well. You all need to do what we do. You all need to believe what we believe. And if you don't, you're, you're sinning. You're disobedient to God. We can do that politically, can't we? Can't we do that politically? The Republicans are sinning in this way. And the Democrats are sinning in this way. And we can kind of set up camp on one side or the other or somewhere in the middle and say everyone else is wrong. If you are really a Christian, you would do this, right? And so, so we have those little social media battles and the memes go flying. And, and all of them are meant to, to, to support our perspective that Jesus is on our side. That God is on our side. And we're on the side of right. Or maybe we're on the right side of history or whatever it might be. Right? If you're holding somebody to something like that, be careful. Be careful that Jesus is not saying to you, you have left the commandment of God to hold to the tradition of men or to the tradition of your party or whatever it might be. It's a, it's a reality that we're, that we're all facing. <laughs> if creating more rules for ourselves and others, well, here's the thing, creating more rules for ourselves and others does not solve our sin problem. It's not going to fix our hearts. It's not going to change us. And it's not going to change what comes out of a person. It won't. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. What is Paul saying in Galatians? 
he's saying what essentially what Jesus is saying and what he's about to say in just a moment. We're going to look at that. Where he's saying, you're trying to obey all these laws, but if you're, good, if you're trying to stay under the law and obey all of those laws and you're adding all of those rules and doing this and that, you're going to end up having a problem eventually. There's going to come a time when your rules are going to conflict with these other rules and then you're going to be judged by that law. So then Jesus offers a rebuttal. A rebuttal. In verse 9 he says, He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what is the, rebu- the rebuttal? Jesus is, is pointing out, here's one of your problems. Here's an illustration. Hey, let me just prove the problem with one of your own rules. You have this rule, it's called korban, and that meant a gift or an offering in the, in the Old Testament times. And that gift or offering, people would come and they would offer this thing to God. They'd say, I've got uh, an animal, I've got um, uh, produce, I've got something from the field, I'm giving it to God. Maybe even like, if you go back to 1 Samuel and you see Hannah offering his child, her, her child, excuse me, Samuel to God to serve at the temple. She's saying, uh, my son is going to grow up and I want my son to be God's, for God. So this, this idea of korban, well, ha- how did it actually work? Here's what people were doing. The rule was you could, you could claim anything in your life was korban, was a gift to God. But you didn't have to give it to the temple or you didn't have to give it to the work of God until after you died. And so you could basically, uh, what do they call that? Um, <laughs> well, okay, never mind. It, it, was, it was basically designated a certain way. And so what, what that meant in actuality was my car. I'd say, my car is a gift to God. And so I will continue to use my car. But if somebody else needed it, or was in need and needed to drive around, I'd say, I'm sorry, but my car is Corbin. And it can only be used, it's only for God. So I'm just, I'll continue to use it until I die and then it can go off to somebody else. That's basically the idea. Does that make sense to any of you? <laughs> so here's what was happening. This rule of Corban prevented a person from honoring his father or his mother. When his father or mother came to old age and were in need and could no longer work and maintain a living, the parents would take care of them, come into our home. Uh, We are still young and we are still working and we will take care of you in your old age and we will make sure that we meet all of your needs. But a man would say, though, this field and all all that it, it 
all that I get from it, all of its profits is Corban. It's, it's for God. And I can't give it to anybody else. And, and my home or my property is, is for God alone. And what it meant was it was restricted from being used for anything else. And he would go to the, he would go to the scribes and say, what, do I, what should I do? My parents are in need. And they would say, oh no. You can't help your parents with that. You can't give them that house. You can't let them live there because this is for God. You've already ca- called it Corban. That was what was going on. And Jesus says, what, is, what are you doing? You're taking this tradition of the elders, which is really the tradition of men, and you've made it your tradition. This is you. This is on you. Your rules should not contradict, and in fact, they shouldn't reverse God's laws, God's commands. I mean, that, that's the problem. Convictions that contradict commands, they produce... Uh, what was going to happen to those parents? Death. They produce death and not life. We, we may think that, uh, that our, our personal convictions, we got to hold to them and we say, well, that's a man of conviction, that's a wom- woman of conviction. But if it's not based on God's commands, we're not in a good place. Not in a good place at all. In fact, it's going to lead only to death. Because that's the, that's the end of sin, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that real ethical dilemmas don't exist. When we're reading God's Word, and we're, we're trying to figure it out. And we may, we may find ourselves in a situation where, where there's a dilemma, where we need wisdom, we need some advice, we need some counsel, but don't allow your personal convictions to conflict with a clear command of God. Don't let, don't let that happen. If so, you might be keeping a tradition of men. So then what does Jesus do? He gives them a proper diagnosis. A proper diagnosis. Here's what's really going on. Beginning at verse 14, And He called the people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And some of the older translations, King James adds another verse, verse 16. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But in the ESV it goes on in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters, it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, thus he declared, all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So you see what you hear what he's saying? Are we, are we like the disciples without understanding? I hope not. I hope we're, I hope we're 
getting what he's actually saying. And it was interesting too, because the rabbis had a rule about things. They, they taught that the inside of a dish was especially susceptible to defilement. And yet they failed to apply that to people. And Jesus did. Jesus took that and he applied it to people. He said, it's, it's what's inside of people that defiles them, not what comes into them. Verse 19, Mark adds this little parenthetical statement. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Something that Peter, in preaching this gospel in Rome, knew all too well back in Acts chapter 10, verse, or Acts chapter 10 and 11. Jesus taught him, don't call anything unclean that I have called clean. Food and people. So here's the thing. This list, verses 21 to 22, out of the heart of man come... Just, just check this list. Evil thoughts, bad thoughts. Sexual immorality, any kind of immoral behavior or actions, anything like that. Theft and murder, adultery. And remember what Jesus said about those things? about murder and adultery. <laughs> person who hates his brother has already committed murder in his heart. If a man looks on a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. In verse 22, coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. Let's just add those on. Those seem to jump out at me. When you see that list, you realize that this, this problem, this diagnosis that Jesus is presenting, it applies to every one of us. We all have hearts that stir up wickedness all the time. And it comes out in our attitudes, it comes out in our thoughts, and it comes out in our behavior, the things that we do, things that we say. Our external attempts to please God are not good enough. And that's the problem, that's that, the, the diagnosis that Jesus is making. And it's, it's, it's hitting us throughout this whole passage. Our external thoughts, are, or attempts, excuse me, to please God are not good enough. Try as we might, if our hearts are bad, whatever we do and whatever we say is just not going to please God. And the second problem, the second focus of this, the second aspect of this diagnosis is that, is that our hearts are the real problem. They're the problem. We need, we need something done in our hearts. Have you seen the connection? Those of you who were with us last week, we talked about a cure for hard hearts. <laughs> And he's, Jesus is not done, Mark is not done telling us how Jesus helps us with our hearts. He's not done with that. We have another, another week of exploring the problem that is in our hearts. And really then the, the answer, the, the solution is that, just, that Jesus is our only hope. And here's, here's, here's how. He not only reveals the truth to us, He not only points it out to us and He says, your hearts are wicked, all of you. 
all of and all of me. He not only does that, but then he presents himself before God as one whose heart is pure, as one whose heart is holy, as one who, who could perfectly obey every command of the law and not fail at it. Oh yes, yes, he abandoned the tradition of men. He said, come on, get rid of all that junk. But when you come, when it, you come down to it, what God revealed and commanded in His Word, He was faithful in. And He perfectly obeyed it. And you know what? Then He stood before God. He stood before God at the beginning of His ministry. As He goes in and out of the water, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love, my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I'm pleased with Him. And He, he does everything right and perfect. And that's what Jesus did. He did that throughout His entire life. And He died sinless, died perfectly. And He paid for our problems, our sins. His perfect sacrifice as a substitution for us. And then He offers us real transformation. He says, okay, I've done this. Do you want to please God? Do you want to live a life before God that's pleasing and holy? And then do you want to have that fellowship of a, of a true son or daughter with the Heavenly Father? It's through me. It's through faith in me. And so... Paul, in reflecting on that in his letter to the Romans, he said this in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It could not perfect us. It could not make us righteous. It could point out the sin and point out our need, but we needed Jesus. And so, what does He do? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, the legitimate requirements of the law, might be fulfilled in us. How? Through Jesus. Who walk, we, us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so that's what Jesus has done. He has given us Himself. And He's imputed His righteousness to us. And then He said, walk in that. I will give you My Spirit and I will help you to live the way you need to live. You need a heart transplant. You need The heart of stone needs to be removed. And you need to have a heart of flesh, one that beats for God, one that beats for obedience, one that loves people as they should, one that has compassion on people as they should, one that desires to obey and, and not just to be justified in and of themselves. We don't need another excuse for disobedience. We need a reason to obey. And Jesus has given us that. The writer of Hebrews then said, in chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I want to encourage you to do what the people did at the beginning of the story. Recognize Jesus, who He is, and what He does. To recognize your need and 
Admit that. Realize your need. You need Him. He doesn't need you, but you need Him desperately. Your path only leads to death without Him. And then believe that He and only He can heal you. Only He can set you free. Only He can deal with the sin that infects every aspect of your life. And go to Him in faith. What, what the writer of Hebrews says, seek Him earnestly. Go to Him. Put your faith in Him. Allow Him to do the work that only He can do in you. And maybe that means rejecting a tradition of men that you have been holding on to for a long time. Or maybe a tradition in your own life or in your own heart, maybe a belief that you have that's, that's all about, if only I do this, God will be happy with me. And maybe you need to identify that and pluck it out and remove it from the equation so that it's all Jesus working in your heart. And what comes out of you then is something beautiful, something honoring, something pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us today and I thank you for, for your presence. And Lord, I ask that you will help us to reject not, not your commands, reject our own our own traditions that might be counter to you that are keeping us from being who you want us to be. Our hearts changed, transformed by Jesus that we may love you and serve you and honor you. Father, do what only you can do and that is... uh, something something in our hearts that we can't change ourselves. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.